Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. I want to do something that is not usual for me. This is more like a Stephen Baker sermon. Uh, it has a sort of linear character, whereas I'm kind of <laughs> dynamic. Which means I have highs and I have lows. Uh, Stephen did a good job this morning on marijuana and whether we should use it as Christians. Um, the reason that he taught on that was because you're asking questions in Sunday school and he takes one question a week. The reason you ask the question about marijuana is that a number of states we go to now, it's legal. And so this presents the question to Christians whether or not the reason we do or don't do things is simply because it's illegal. You take it for granted here, but you should not take it for granted that we conscientiously try to deal with the world that we live in. We don't try to reproduce a world that's dead. We don't try to go back into some pristine past and do what our fathers and mothers did two or three centuries ago. And the reason is that the gaps in the wall have changed from then to now. The places where world is focusing on the church and punching us are different 500 years ago at the time of the Reformation than they are now. And so what we try to do is watch very closely for the gaps in the wall, and then at that place we try to blow the trumpets. Now, this morning... You might wonder as you listen, why am I doing what I'm doing on this text? Well, it's because, as it happens, the text this morning has application to a number of the battles that you and I are fighting today. So be patient as we go through and you will see this. Now let's hear the word of God as we continue through the book of Romans. This is Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. This is the word of God and it is eternally true. One of the things I liked about the Beijing pastor that you saw up there is I saw a video of him preaching, and he was using hand gestures. It was clear he had zeal for what he was saying. And you have to sometimes imagine the Apostle Paul using hand gestures. And here are the hand gestures that aren't in the inspired word of God, but I can see them. He says, what shall we say then? Okay. Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me, for sin taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. 
Yeah. Scratch me where I itch. Now, this is typical for the Apostle Paul to begin a section where something very important is at stake by asking a question. And he asks the question here, and then immediately he, he exclaims a condemnation. All right? And the question is this. What shall we say then is the law sin? The condemnation is, may it never be. Now, I want you to notice something that I call attention to again and again with the Apostle Paul, which is the Apostle Paul is a lover of men. We have many, many pastors today who don't love men, and men is inclusive of women. They don't love their sheep. What they love is books, they love doctrine, but they don't love their sheep. The Apostle Paul, we know he loves his sheep because of how firmly he fights to protect them. All right, he names names of who is reproducing error, who has betrayed the gospel, Alexander the metal worker, (laughs) okay? But the Apostle Paul also, when he writes, is very clear in saying that uh, he himself is not above asking the question he condemns. And so I want you to notice that it says, what shall we say then? He doesn't say, well, what are you going to say then, you know? That's a leader who's saying he's not capable of falling into the error he's about to condemn. The Apostle Paul makes it very clear that he can fall into this error. He says, well, okay, what shall we say then? He says, is the law sin? It's very sweet. Don't miss that pronoun, we. Okay. Now, this question, we have to understand, is coming out of context. The context is Romans 6 and Romans 7. In Romans 6, he spends the chapter explaining that we have died to sin. Romans 7, the first six verses, he spent explaining that we've died to the law. Now, do you see how it's natural to assume that if we have died to sin and died to the law, we live in grace, right? Everybody hip with that? Everybody okay, right? Okay, if we've died to sin, we've died to the law, then what? Well, we live in grace. And the tendency of devious sinners like you and me, okay, is always to take a mile when we've been given an inch. And so the minute he teaches us that we've died to sin and died to the law, then let grace abound. And how do you make grace abound? Well, you become antinomian, anti-nomos, anti-law in Greek. And so all through history, there have been people who understanding that we've died to sin and died to the law, they become antinomian. And they say, let's sin that grace may abound. And that is the, I would argue, that's the normal condition of Protestant Reformed churches in the Western world today. There's no patience for the law. The Ten Commandments aren't preached. The law of God is not honored. Now, they don't stand up and say, I'm antinomian. What they do is they preach the grace of God without saying what the Apostle Paul says here. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. And so we have to be very careful here. Now, you know how on Twitter and, you know, uh, social media, Instagram, 
Facebook. You know how people will put the most inane statements up and then put a famous name under those statements? You know how they do that? You know, like, the sky is blue, Tim Bailey. I mean, that's a joke. But you get my point. You know, now listen. It's very common for people to quote Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is a hero of mine, saying that when the gospel's preached accurately, it will always be accused of being antinomian. What he's saying is, the Apostle Paul is right. You don't quote somebody saying the Apostle Paul is right. You just say it, you know. Don't call attention to people that you want to show that you're conversant with or you read by putting what are essentially obvious statements up on your Instagram account and then saying, you know, Martin Lloyd-Jones said it, right? Right? Do you get the point? It is obvious when you preach the gospel that people are going to take the gospel and they're going to say that you're antinomian. If you preach the free grace of God, they're going to accuse you of saying what? Precisely what the Apostle Paul has just been accused of and is answering, which is the law is evil. There's a reason he asks these questions, and that is he is preaching the free grace of God. And when you preach that God in his mercy has reached down to us, we can't reach up to him. Then we're going to be accused of thinking the law is evil. The law is opposed to our salvation. The the law is opposed to everything good. And so, the Apostle Paul is showing us that this isn't an insight of Martin Lloyd-Jones. This is always what attends the preaching of the gospel, that we're going to be accused of having no respect for the law and thinking it's evil. And so he says, what then shall we say? Is the law sin? May it never be. And then he says, on the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. Now, there's something going on there that you might not think about, but once I say it, you're going to say, yeah, that's obvious. What's obvious is if it's not evil, if it's not sin, and if it's not sin because without it we would not have come to know sin, then it follows that it's good that we come to know sin. And it's good that the law helps us to know sin. Do you see this? Now, I'm not going to continue on this because there's work we have to do. We'll come back to it in a couple of weeks. Now, here's the question that I want to deal with. The question is, when you read over this and you say, what then should we say? Is the law sin may never on the kind we're not going to accept through the law, for I'm not going to covet. If the law had not said you shall not covet. We read over the word law, 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 okay? And we think to ourselves, I know what that is. When you read the word law three times just in this verse or these verses, what does it mean? You think you know, but I want to open some things up to you, okay? Throughout Christian history, those who are as careful with Scripture as they are with the IRS tax code, you understand what I'm saying there? Don't tell me you're stupid when you are so good at finding weasel places in the IRS tax code. Okay, 
those men who read Scripture carefully have divided the law up into three categories. And those three categories are the ceremonial law, the judicial law, and the moral law. The ceremonial law has to do with cleanliness generally. The judicial law has to do with state politics government. And the moral law has to do with the character of God. The ceremonial law was abrogated in the New Covenant, New Testament, as opposed to Old Covenant, Old Testament. The judicial law was also abrogated. It's done with in the New Covenant. It was in place in the Old Covenant. The moral law is eternal, universal, never varies. The moral law never varies and is eternal because it's rooted in the character and perfections of God. God cannot lie, therefore do not lie, bear false witness. The judicial law is is a little bit different because in the judicial law, what we say is the judicial law doesn't apply because we're not in a theocracy. The Israelites were in a theocracy where God was their ruler directly through the king, through the priest, through the prophet. All right? But we also say that the judicial law applies to our life as a people in whatever country we live in and in how our representatives legislate in that country. All right? but that when they do so, they should do so on the basis of the general equity of the Old Testament judicial laws. It's abrogated, but you should still get to know the general equity of the Old Testament laws and apply them to life. Not tit for tat, but general equity. General equity means the general wisdom, fairness, and justice. So as the Old Testament judicial laws have application, and if you talk to Brian, Brian loves his wife. He's an attorney. Brian loves his wife. Brian loves his children. But immediately after his wife and his children comes the general equity of the law. He studies it. He never stops thinking about it. And he never stops gnashing his teeth at the destruction of the general equity of the law that has been encoded in Western civilization, in English common law, in the American governmental structure, the balance of the different areas of government or spheres, what are they called? The... Brian. Yeah, the different branches. That was a word that was too complicated for me. <laughs> the different branches of government. Okay. The moral law eternal, rooted in the perfections, the attributes, the character of God. Judicial, abrogated, nevertheless, as it generally is wholesome, we will implement it. And then the ceremonial, which is simply abrogated. That's the distinction between clean and unclean. The ceremonial law was principally the way that God reinforced the fact that the uncircumcised are dirty. And if you don't think about dirty and clean when you read through the Old Testament, you don't begin to understand it. You have to understand that much of the Jews' life was an attempt to avoid being 
morally, spiritually, and physically dirty. And so here is where, for instance, you have all of the, uh, the washings, okay? Here is where you have the prohibitions of being in contact with dead bodies. Here is where you have <clears throat> all kinds of restrictions on what you can eat. And these laws about blood, about different animals and, and dietary restrictions, kosher, right, All of these laws are an attempt to put up a firewall between the people of God and the world. So that everything the Jew does reminds him that he belongs to God and he may not live eating pork. Because pork is dirty. God commanded you not to eat pork. Are you all with me? So now let's come back. Moral law, the Ten Commandments, from the character of God forever. All men forever. Judicial law abrogated, done away with, except observe it and learn what there is to learn there. And apply it in the general fairness of it, you know. Ceremonial, abrogated. Now, if you were to go to Scripture and say, where is he coming up with that? Where am I coming up with the ceremonial being done away with? Well, I'm just going to name two places, but they're the the classic locations to deal with it. One of them is the rending of the temple's veil in two. When Jesus died, the temple's veil, the curtain, was split apart. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all make note of this specifically. And that veil is right at the heart of clean and unclean. You understand this? It's like the most visible thing that there is marking the difference between clean and unclean. Where else? Well, the other classic location is Peter. You remember that Peter, the Apostle Peter, was going to go and he was going to be called. We know from Scripture there was a very holy man who was a Gentile and his name was Cornelius. And God heard the prayers of Cornelius and decided that he was going to send the Apostle Peter to preach the gospel to Cornelius. All right, you remember this. And so Cornelius is preparing for the gospel to come, and the Apostle Peter is preparing to go and preach. And the Bible tells us that Peter went up on the roof to pray. And I'm sure all of you have had the experience of while you're praying, what happens? your stomach begins to grumble. So what we have is we have the Apostle Peter. He's he's praying, his stomach is rumbling, and he wants food. And then the Bible tells us that he went into a trance. Now listen to what happens. He goes into a trance, and God speaks to him in his trance. Okay? Um, And this is what God says to him. He became hungry, Acts 10.10, and he was desiring to eat, but while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance and he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Okay? 
Again, a voice came to him a second time, and this is what to listen to. It says, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. What God has cleansed, don't you call it unclean. Don't call it unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now listen, what this means is that God is no longer dealing with his people in a bunch of firewall rules that separate us from the world. And anybody that tries to restore that firewall is not obedient to scripture. Those rules were for the church, the people of God, back when they were in their minority not when the church is in its majority. That was for before we turned 18. Okay? Now, would you go ahead and put it up, uh, the Westminster? I want to read from the Westminster Standards on this subject because I want you to see that you have a most excellent help to understand Scripture in the Westminster Standards. God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works by which he bound him and all his posterity, posterity means descendants, to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promise life upon the fulfilling, and threaten death upon the breach of it, and endued him, in other words, gave to him, with power and ability to keep it. This law, after his fall, Adam's fall, continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness, and as such, was delivered by God upon Sinai, what we call the Ten Commandments. In Ten Commandments, and written in two tables, the first four commandments containing our duty towards God, and the other six our duty to demand. Besides this law, commonly called moral, God's moral law, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel as a church under age. Remember I said minority and majority. Church under age is a church that is under age in the minority. Ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, and sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth a whole bunch of different kind of instructions of moral duties. All which ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament, okay? To them also, as a body politic, in other words, as a nation, as a state, He gave sundry, which means a whole bunch of different kinds, variety, judicial laws which expired together with the state of that people. In other words, when Israel stopped to exist as a state, the laws binding them as a state expired also. Of that people not obliging any other now further than the general equity thereof may require. The moral law doth forever bind all, as well-justified persons, in other words, Christians as unbelievers, to the obedience thereof, and that not only in regard to the matter contained in it, but also in respect to the authority of God the Creator who gave it. Neither doth Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. Now, that's what I'm trying to teach you. And, 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 And why is this important? What does this have to do with the gaps in the walls today, okay? Okay, listen. Shall I start with Me Too? Any of you heard of Me Too? 
Y'all know what Me Too is, okay? Now, I keep wondering when I'm on social media and when I listen to Christians talk, I keep wondering why no Christian brings up the fact that there actually is wisdom in the Old Testament about this. Because every single time I read about it, the Old Testament pops into my brain. There is general equity in the Old Testament that used to be enshrined in the, in the legal codes of Western countries that everybody acts as if it doesn't exist. Now, what legal code in the Old Testament has application that's wise today to the Me Too? Okay, there's a reason why you have never mentioned this on Facebook. This is from Deuteronomy 22, beginning with verse 23. If there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man, and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, you all know what's going on there, right? Then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death. Okay, everybody with me. The girl, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he has violated his neighbor's wife, thus you shall purge the evil from among you. Now listen. What's going on here? Well, it's so obvious I always say, why is it that feminism has taken away the moral agency of women? You would think that a movement that has been going on for many decades now all over the world would make women more aware of their power and authority morally. But somehow, it's removed their moral agency. So if anybody says anything bad has ever happened to them as a woman from a man's hands, he's guilty until proven innocent. And that's the whole basis of the Me Too. What God says is, if it's in a city, she and the man she had immoral sex with must both be punished. And you say, oh no, not punished, killed. Capital crime. And I say, yeah, that's the part of the general equity that we do not believe should continue today. The general equity of the punishment is the fact that it goes to the man and the woman. It's the fact that it's serious. Are we really in a better state when there is no penalty for adultery today? I mean, come on, people. The court's... And, and the ad litems and, and the attorneys are just absolutely out of control trying to find out how to care for the children who are left in the shambles of homes because of adultery and divorce. People kill because of it. And you're going to tell me that it doesn't matter about adultery? I remember when I was preaching in your church and I used as an illustration the fact that there were actually... Uh, many churches that had adultery going on in the middle, like my first church, everybody knew it, and nobody did a thing, least of all the elder and the pastors. You know, and everybody knew it! Town of 1500, guess what? Everybody knows it. And then afterwards, (laughs) can I tell them? Afterwards, I don't know whether it was you or... I don't know who it was, but somebody comes up. I'm preaching his ordination. And they tell me that there was a woman there whose husband is in prison. 
because he found out about the adultery with the neighbor. He took a shotgun, waited until the man came out of his house, and shot him dead. Come on, people. We have to open our eyes and see the consequences of the government refusing to discipline. And if you have somebody say to you, well, you know that Pastor Tim Bailey, you know, he was saying that a woman who has sex with a man other than her her engaged man should be executed. Okay, read my lips. No. No, 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 no. It's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying they should be executed. What I am saying is we should treat sex more seriously than we are treating it today. Because people die, children's lives are ruined. And it is society's obligation to try to protect the defenseless, the weak, and the innocent. Is this so radical today that for me to say it makes me wacko? No. It makes you wimps. You want me to say it here in the privacy of the church, but then you don't want it outside of church because we can all agree that Tim's allowed to say things that are a little bit edgy in church. <laughs> you know, and that's as close as we get to confessing our faith today. Isn't he wonderful? Look at him up there. I mean, I've thought that, but I wouldn't say it, you know. Okay, all right. I'm not going to be passive-aggressive, just aggressive-aggressive. All right. Now, isn't this helpful? If it's in the city and no one heard her crying out, she's punished as the man is. You take this and apply it to me too. Am I an idiot? I mean, really? There's a pretty actress going up to Harvey Weinstein's room in a hotel and I'm supposed to pity her and kill him? Everybody knew who he was and what he did. Again, I'm not arguing that he be killed or she be killed. But I am arguing that women have power over men. And God will take that into account at the last judgment. And so because we as a Western society have decided that women are never going to be responsible for anything... It's like, come on, can we please respect women? Can we realize that Eve had some failure and not just Adam? Y'all with me? And so a woman is to cry out when there are people to hear her. Do you get the principle? And not wait 10, 15, 20 years and then cry out. And what was she accruing in terms of movie roles in the interim? Okay. Now, that's the first half of the text. Here's the second. But if in the field, so one's in the city, one's in the field. But if in the field the man finds the girl who is engaged and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lies with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the girl. There is no sin in the girl worthy of death. For just as a man rises against his neighbor and murders him, so is this case. When he found her in the field, listen carefully, when he found her in the field, the engaged girl cried out, but there was no one to save her. Now, how does he come up with, she cried out? 
It doesn't say she cried out. The presumption is the innocence of the woman if there is no one to hear her. Does this make sense? Is it really such a threat to human happiness and freedom for us to see the general equity of these laws? And so what we're really in is we're in the throes of an ideological battle. And Christian, you must live at that gap in the wall and be a voice of sanity. And you women especially. I'm appalled at how few Christian women will speak up about this and claim the moral agency of women. You know, I constantly counsel young men that they should marry the woman they love instead of the woman that loves them. And there are many men that marry the woman that loves them. Why? Because women are powerful. Don't ever underestimate woman. And so you see that the general equity of the judicial law is helpful. And I could go on and on and on and on about the ways that the Old Testament judicial laws are helpful to us today. And if you learn the Old Testament laws, you'll see where most of English common law and most of our law comes from. It comes from the general equity of Scripture. Read Blackstone's commentaries on the English common law. Is there anything else that they should read, Brian? The original codes, the legal codes of the colonies in America were basically quotations from the Old Testament. You all with me? This is your patrimony. All right? This is what you're to protect. Not because we want to stone homosexuals. And this is where it gets really evil. Because the minute you start talking about Scripture in the public square, people try to gag you. I was thinking the other day that if I could take one thing back from my father's generation, one thing, I would take back the refusal to ever quote the law of God and the commandments of God in their fighting for the future of their country and state and city. I think it has been the most awful thing because Christians were the ones who said to each other, don't ever quote scripture. I heard this perpetually. And I used to say to people, if you don't quote an authority, it loses its authority. Even Dobson would say, don't quote scripture. Now, we quote scripture, and then we say to people, now I understand that you reject the authority of scripture, but I want to be very transparent in what is my authority. Why shouldn't everybody know what the authority is that we're speaking? What on earth is the authority of all the mindless numbers of the Western world? The authority of the French Revolution. It just oozes out of them. Why shouldn't it ooze out of Christians the general equity of the law? If our colonial authorities could do it, if Blackstone, if all the English common law, why are we ashamed of this? We don't think we can implement it the way they did. Now, let me bring up one other thing and then make a comment and I'll be done. So you understand Me Too has real application to which law he's talking about here. Me Too is judicial, okay? But let's talk about ceremonial for a second. 
If you ever point out that from time immemorial, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, and therefore homosexuality is condemned by God, and heterosexuality is commanded and designed and created. If you point that out, almost certainly, within a few minutes, what's going to happen is somebody's going to say, oh yeah, well, at the same place where that's condemned in the Old Testament, it also condemns what? Intimacy during the menstrual cycle. And I have seen this done over and over again by mockers and slanderers who the minute you say God calls same-sex relations an abomination, they will say, oh, yeah, yeah, and so, you know, do you avoid having sex with your wife during that time of the month? Endlessly I've seen this done. What is our answer to it? Our answer is the Old Testament, the ceremonial laws, said no to touching blood. It was dirty. If you touched it, you were removed from society for a period of time. A woman was unclean after giving birth, okay? If you touched a dead body, that's done. And so what I'm living for, and then I can say, now I may depart in peace. What I'm living for is the day some Christian, other than stupid me, is going to say on some social media, don't be ignorant. That's a ceremonial law. All Christians have understood. Ceremonial laws are abrogated. But the law about man and woman is from before the fall in the Garden of Eden. It's perpetual. Now, ask yourself the question. First, why didn't you know that? I could ask you all kinds of questions about the IRS tax code, and you know it. Come on. Come on. You've got to get more willing to put your brain into Scripture, right? Can you all give me some some love about that, right? Until you are committed to growing in your knowledge of Scripture, I have a Sisyphean task. I'm trying to roll a huge rock up the mountain and it just keeps rolling back on me. You know? So give yourself to this. Now, it really does matter what the three kinds of law are, doesn't it? And it's not just an interpretive method that we've made up to save ourselves embarrassment. It's in Scripture. The veil of the temple was written to God said, don't call unclean what I've cleaned. Now, you all have a piece of paper in your bulletin. Take it out and write down the Ten Commandments, please. And just use one word for each commandment. One to ten. Not the Lutheran or Roman Catholic numbering, but our numbering. Um, dee-dum, dee-dum, dee-dum. I'll give you a clue. One of them is partly moral and partly ceremonial. And Protestants, Reformed Protestants, have been fighting over which part is which for centuries.
I'll give you another clue. Another one of them was actually in our text. I did this right before a sermon series on the Ten Commandments up in Wisconsin at my pastorate there. And you know what the average was in the church? Six. Most churches, the average would be four. And when you get, when you leave, we're going to collect these at the door. Don't sign them, but we're going to see what our average is. Except Pastor Tallman, I want to see yours. (laughs) All the elders will be examined. (laughs) I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, how many are done? All right, come on, those of you that aren't done, I've I've got to end. Got to, got to, got to end. Okay, now having asked you that, remember, the moral law, perpetual, universal. You understand that because it's rooted where? It's rooted in the perfections, the character of God. He cannot deny himself, and we must not. The fourth commandment is the commandment I was referring to. That's the one, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. There's always been arguments about the degree to which it does it's ceremonial in the degree to which it's moral. And they're fascinating arguments, okay? But that's the only one. The one that the Apostle Paul refers in this passage refers to is which one? The tenth, although it's interesting, Roman Catholics split the tenth up into two commandments because they sort of uh, get rid of the one about not making idols, images, okay? Now, What does this have to do with the book of Romans? Did you notice in our text, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be on the contrary. I would not have known to come to to know sin except through the law. What law is he talking about? Is he talking about the ceremonial law, the judicial law, or the moral law? Well, you know he's talking about the moral law because it says what? I wouldn't have known what envy was if I hadn't been told that I'm not to envy. Envy is the tenth of the Ten Commandments. But do you know that many, many people say that when the Apostle Paul uses the word law in the book of Romans, he is referring only to what? The ceremonial laws. Now, I can't continue. I have to end. You're, you're left wondering, why would they do that? Well, we'll come back. But I want to end with a little, a little, um, uh, little exhortation, okay? Remember, I say don't quote famous people if, if something's obvious. I'm going to quote a, a famous person who said something obvious, all right? 
Jonathan Edwards said the most difficult issue in theology is whether there is the degree to which there's continuity between the covenants and the degree to which there's discontinuity. In other words, which things from the Old Testament carry through to the New Testament and which things from the Old Testament do not carry through to the New Testament. Continuity and discontinuity, the most, and I'm quoting Edwards because he's the smartest dude there is. And he says this is incredibly difficult. If you want to understand why we disagree in this church over a lot of things, we get along well together, but why do we disagree over infant baptism? It's because some of us see infant baptism as being the continuity of circumcision, and others among us say, no, there is no continuity because in the new covenant it is faith. And we argue about continuity, discontinuity of baptism. If you want to know why there's a division among Christians as to how to handle abortion in our nation, it's because some people who look at abortion say, this is clear in Scripture, and the laws of the nation must be as clear as Scripture is, whereas others of us realize we are living in a train wreck. And there is no simple answer to the issue of abortion. You can say it's illegal, and then you'll be back where the United States was in 1972 when we had 750,000 abortions. Prior to Roe v. Wade. You all with me? We can't be simplistic as Christians when it comes to handling the law of God. We live in a diverse culture. We live in a pluralistic culture. The one thing that we're absolutely committed to doing is to standing for God and His truth as individuals. But that's the one thing that is most costly to us. And so we try to operate from strength. And so we're like, abolition of abortion. And nobody who doesn't believe in abolition should ever be able to open their mouth as a Christian. Come on. Listen, it is extremely difficult to live as a Christian today. And when you add to that our cowardice and shame at the name of Jesus Christ and his words, then of course we're going to want to get some guy elected who's going to whoop up on all of them. And that's just pathetic. The most powerful thing in China is what? The most powerful force in China today is the persecution of the church. When that report was being given earlier in the first service, Max, all of a sudden, David, Pastor Carell, he stands up, he comes back to us in the back, and he says, I just love this. He says, the government persecutes them, splits them up into groups of 20, and they just keep growing and growing and growing. If you'll suffer for the gospel, it will grow. Government is not our solution. Now, am I opposed to us legislating that abortion is illegal? No. Am I opposed to legislating that, you know, bestiality is illegal? No. Am I against laws against incest? No. Am I for reporting husbands that beat their wives? Yes. But that's not the solution. It helps. 
The solution is the conscience of the Christian who is unashamed of both Jesus and his words. And so would you please confess Jesus Christ this week? You know? And then the wonderful thing is that Tim Bailey will shut up. (laughs) And I'm going to shut up now. I'm way over, but this one I had to do a lot of heavy lifting. What? Oh, yeah, so the baskets are back on the table for you to put your Ten Commandments into. Remember, Edward says the most difficult issue in theology is the distinction between where there's continuity of the covenants and where there's discontinuity. And that must mean that we are humble at those places. And don't try to look down our noses at people who have a different understanding, all right? Let's go ahead and close with a song this time, if you don't mind, Alex.